Swallowing Physiology series. And of course, it's me, Anessa Humbert, and Alicia Vos. Of course, we know that this is both, this is a bittersweet podcast for me because it's about laryngeal vestibule closure, which I am obsessed with, but I recognize the rest of the world isn't. And so it's tough for me to come down to the level of how do you modify your level of enthusiasm over the swallowing event so people can actually follow you? I don't want to go all what's it called a beautiful mind on people right now it's like so that's what I'm struggling with and Alicia's the same way because her dissertation focused heavily on this and we have a review paper on this topic where it's called hidden in plain laryngeal vestibule closure hidden in plain sight and so importantly the issue really is that we have a vendetta on top of everything which is we're obsessed with this and we feel like it's the most obvious and important part of swallowing that most people do not pay attention to. So I just want to say that we're drinking a cab Cabernet Sauvignon and we're doing that just to calm ourselves down right now. Like we need to calm down five levels. Well, I'm already fired up because one, you said we think that it's the most important um, event or aspect in swallowing, but I would say I don't think it's our belief i just think it is what it is you're like, like i'm sorry me this. i'm sorry this is not me at the altar crying this is science okay this is like don't be a flat earther but about at LBC. the end of the day what else matters other than being able to close off your airway i mean exactly. i feel like those memes with the guy sitting at the table and he's always holding a poster board and it's something controversial mm-hmm. and he's drinking a cup of coffee and it's like but convince me otherwise yeah. where it's like <laughs> lvc is the primary swallowing event like convince me otherwise yeah. like well okay so i will here's my thought there are two primary swallowing events, and we're not on the one I'm going to say, but I feel like it's laryngeal vestibule closure and UAS opening. Okay. And the reason sure, it has sure, sure. To, it ha- you have to include UAS opening is because if the larynx does everything beautifully and comes back down and has a big bolus there waiting for it because the UAS never opened, it's only as good as the UAS in terms of its efficiency. Sure. However, I am with you 100%, and I am that person who's going to be at ASHA at the table sipping my coffee <laughs> with a cardboard paper saying, convince me why LVC is not one of two of the most important swallowing events. Well, I guess it's like we have two empires. You know, they say the purpose of swallowing is um, to be able to eat and drink safely and to be able to obtain, to have adequate nutrition, mm-hmm. right? So the safety aspect, LVC is queen, and the efficiency or nutritional aspect of actually getting the food into your stomach is the UES is king. Wait, so can I just? I just, I just, I just, I just, gender, I just understand? I, gender, I did gender, <laughs> and I did it because I had wow. to make LVC the woman because wow. that is my um, protection. Obviously, that's where I live. That's mm-hmm. the island that I live on, and I, I would like to have um, a queen reign. Yeah. And um, yeah, I just gendered UES as male. So. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, interesting that interesting because I would argue that um, they're both gender fluid because they both <laughs> have a fluid relationship, right, with boluses. But anyway, the point here is uh, we are going to talk about LBC, and we swear that by the end of this podcast, you are going to have tangible information that you can take home, and it's not going to be this crazy science ivory tower. Like you don't you don't have to solve for X to understand anything we're saying. Is what I'm going to say. Sure. Okay. Now, if I had to break down laryngeal vestibule closure, by the way, we never said what LVC stands for, so we are already too high level. (laughs) How do we mess up so fast? Okay. 
Laryngeal vestibule closure. First of all, what is the laryngeal vestibule? Like that's where I'm starting. The laryngeal vestibule is a space in the larynx, okay? So it's not the glottis. The glottis is between the vocal folds. It's not the subglottis because that's below the vocal folds. There's above the vocal folds, the supraglottic space, and somewhere in there, it's not to my knowledge been perfectly defined where one space and the other begins. Somewhere beyond the entrance of the laryngeal vestibule down to that supraglottic space or slash glottis is the laryngeal vestibule. One might argue it's everything between the entrance of the larynx and the glottis. So it's an airspace. It's an airspace that we want to not be penetrated by a bolus during a swallow. However, we want it to be completely filled with air during a non-swallow period. And that's one thing I think laryngeal vestibule doesn't get credit for is that the vast majority of time is just staying patent and open so we can breathe. Yep. It cannot close off. That's what laryngospasm is and many other things that can cause an obstruction at the level of the larynx. We want it to stay patent. Mm -hmm. But we are obsessed far more with the activity of closing off efficiently when it needs to periodic, just for that period that some people call swallowing apnea, that period of closure, when the bolus passes posteriorly and the air is trapped on the inside of it. So that's what we're talking about. That's the location we're talking about closing. And that is the function that we're really interested in. Sure. Yeah. And I would say, add to that and just say that the reason why we term the paper, the review paper on the laryngeal vestibule closure as hidden in plain sight is that the interesting thing about swallowing is that at the end of the day, we know that swallowing is complicated. There's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of interconnectedness in the different structures and there's a lot of muscles and nerves. But at the end of the day, the goal is really to, when we're talking about safety, is to keep any sort of food or liquid from entering into this space. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, that is really the um, the goal of all of these structures is to, whether it's to propel the bolus or whether it's to squeeze the bolus or whether it's to divert the bolus around this area, we want to make sure that it's going to the place that it's supposed to go, at which is towards the UES to at the time that it's yeah. supposed to go. And the, the issue that the both of us have had is that oftentimes in dysphagia management, there can be a lot of focus on the second act players so things like the the pharynx or the tongue, highway, the, highway. the hyoid especially, mm -hmm. gets a lot of attention when they're really um, B actors yeah. compared to... B-list actors. B-list right? actors <laughs> when really the focus should be on is the laryngeal vestibule closing in a way that is... Um, so let me just say that's going to come back to bite us when we talk about the role of the pharynx on LVC, but I understand what you're saying. Sure. Ultimately... And so it's interconnected, but I still might argue that the tongue and pharynx are so integral to laryngeal vestibule closure. We'll talk about what that means. I completely agree with you that laryngeal vestibule closure at the levels that, I don't know if you remember this, but Julie Barkmeyer Kramer came to do the, um, what's the name of the lecture series at UF? God, I forgot. Oh yeah, name. the... Um... Anyway, whatever it's called. She came and gave a fabulous talk and talked about laryngeal vestibule closure at various levels. So we're going to get to the physiology. Sure. But before we get there, you said something that is so critical. The first thing is, let, let's forget about the swallow. This person hasn't started to swallow yet. Two things. One is they're just breathing. We talked about it needs mm -hmm. to stay open so they can breathe. Okay, now let's move on to they've put a bolus in their mouth and it's going to move back. What's amazing about the larynx, for just talking about the larynx, is 
there is a role of protection before the swallow even starts by the larynx just being in its simple breathing anatomical position with the with the epiglottis up and this is what people often fail to forget fail to forget or they fail to remember and succeed at forgetting an easier word is forget exactly (laughs) um is that the with the epiglottis upright and the vollecula its job is to divert the bolus around the airway while the swallow gets around to starting so it's not a laryngeal vestibule closure phenomenon but it is one that is an airway protection function just based on the structural anatomy alone that it is set up to divert the bolus around the airway with the epiglottis up at some point it does eventually have to close um, but that's an important aspect and we have to remember that you can't see that laterally on floral you can't determine the depth perception and sometimes it looks like the bolus is just like hanging dangerously or paragliding in air over the larynx but actually it's going around it you can see it really beautifully on fees mm-hmm. so that's another pre-LVC phenomenon to consider, which is breathing, we want a patent. When the bolus enters the pharynx, if you happen to have a swallow where you initiate a little bit later, which happens normally, the anatomy itself should should protect you just by ver- just by virtue of diverting the bolus around the airway while we wait for the swallow to start, which sure. eventually should trigger laryngeal vestibule closure. Sure, yep. Um, so I think we've sort of hammered on the concept of the importance of this. Um, and I, I guess the way that I see it is that um, there's a lot of, of structures in swallowing that their role is to help achieve the ultimate goal of closing the airway. So at the end of the day, and I think about this with like report writing, is if you're going to be describing swallowing physiology, you can describe all these other components. I'm not saying they're not important, things like hyoid movement and tongue movement and um, elevation of the larynx, all of these things, but it better relate back to how it is uh, contributing to laryngeal vestibule closure because alone does it really matter. So if you have somebody that has reduced, if you say in a report, if I read in a report that somebody has reduced hyoid movement, period, yeah, and it's not related to laryngeal vestibule closure or it's not related to that that final goal, then what what are we even talking about? And I would even argue that if I asked most people about the role of the hyoid in a swallow, they might be incorrect. Sure. They'll say, well, we'll, it's we'll open- definitely deep dive into that. Oh later, my God. Well, sure. they'll say, well, it opens the UES, which is going to make me scratch my eyeballs out. Sure. But when we get to that podcast. Okay. So, yes. so let's step back a little bit because we're beautiful minding right now. Um, the first thing that I think is we can talk about the basic mechanism of laryngeal vestibule closure, but first I'd like to emphasize that if I had to say swallowing had two goals, it would be one is airway protection and one is bolus efficiency, meaning efficiently, efficiently move the bolus into the esophagus, this is oropharyngeal swallowing, um, efficiently move the bolus into the esophagus without significant residue or multiple swallows, right? And laryngeal vestibule closure plays a role in both. We focus more on the airway protection because that's its dominant thing, but let's just deal with its role in bolus efficiency and we will get to this more in detail as it relates to UES opening, but laryngeal elevation, and I'll tell you why I need to emphasize laryngeal and hyoid, we're not gonna get into this yet, but laryngeal elevation adds traction to an already relaxed upper esophageal sphincter, helping to, the U- helping to open the UES so that the bolus can clear it. So the role of laryngeal vestibule closure, in that it includes laryngeal elevation, that laryngeal elevation 
also aids in opening the UES. So it does play a role in airway, in bolus efficiency because of that. It doesn't mean that there aren't people who have little bit of laryngeal elevation who doesn't mean that, that they can't clear the, the pharynx because the UES. It is possible that there are variations on both, but in normal swallowing, we expect enough laryngeal elevation to aid in UES opening. And I would like to insert a clarification point here that is going to hold true through the rest of the podcast is that oftentimes you um, read and hear about uh, laryngeal elevation as um, hyolaryngeal elevation. Mm -hmm. And you may think to yourself like, oh, it's basically the same thing. And I want to make a really strong point that we are not talking about hyolaryngeal elevation. We are specifically segregating the hyoid from the larynx. They are two different structures that serve two different roles. Mm -hmm. When we talk about laryngeal elevation, I want to be clear that we are specifically talking about the anterior and or superior movement of the thyroid and cricoid cartilage. And the, and the epiglottis. And we will talk about the movement of the hyoid mm -hmm. as a separate structure with yep. a separate purpose. So yes. I just want to make that clear. That's really important because again, a lot of people say, well, the hyoid helps to flip the epiglottis and like, say words, explain that to me. Mm -hmm. It's going in the exact opposite direction of the epiglottis. It's going up and forward and the top part of the epiglottis is going down and back. Well, Help I think, me understand. I think the more... Um, controversial statement is saying that the hyoid open helps to open the UES. Yes, and that's why I was saying let's get two more let's get through this one and when we get to UES we can sure. totally rage against the machine there. Okay, so that's a that's a little it's a pin. teaser. It's a teaser. Okay. Uh okay. So, so how does the range vestibule close? All right. Should so we go, should we go there? Yeah, why don't you start cuz you're the first author on the paper where you broke it down into categories mm -hmm. that I think were pretty understandable. What we will do in the de description of this podcast in SoundCloud or wherever you're listening to this from, I will add a link to that paper and a link to the many animations that I've created to sort of help explain laryngeal vestibule closure. In the meantime, you're going to get a verbal description from the first author, Dr. Vos. Sure. So, um to keep the components sort of simple, I guess the way that I think about laryngeal vestibule closure is um, separating it into, there are two, I uh, say, main components that achieve the goal of closing the vestibule, and that is movement of the arytenoid cartilages, so the approximation of the arytenoids to the base of the epiglottis, and also the inversion of the epiglottis over the laryngeal inlet. So those are the two main things. And it's salient because those are really the actions that we're looking for in when we are visualizing laryngeal vestibule closure and video fluoroscopy. And I do specify video fluoroscopy because it is the only imaging technique that you can uh, visualize closure of the laryngeal vestibule. Um, it's something that you, you can't visualize with fees because of the, um, the whiteout period that occurs. You just aren't able to see that, um, that structure close. And can I just put a comment out that there's somebody who's doing research in MRI or like ultrasound who's oh, going to say, 3D, yeah, no, who's going to say, CT. you can see it and it's true. You can see it in 3D, in, um, uh, three, 40 is three. I'm all confused now. In Yoko's work. Yoko Yoko's Inamoto's work. work. Yeah. Now I'm all, is it, now that you said 3D CT, I'm like, is it 3D or 4D? It's 3D, right? I, it's 3D, okay. yeah. You can see it in MRI, and you can see, some people say they can see it in, in ultrasound, but what we're talking about are 
immediately clinically available tools. So we're just going to talk about video fluoroscopy and fees. Sure. Go ahead. So, so we talk about the arytenoid approximation and the epiglottic inversion, and those are the two actions that are going to occur that create that graying out of the laryngeal vestibule that achieves that nice closure that you can appreciate in video fluoroscopic images. Now, it's not fair to say that these, so we, these are the two main components, but there are other structures and movements within the um, within swallowing that help to achieve those two goals. So for example, with epiglottic inversion, the epiglottis is a passive structure. It moves because other things move. So all of these aspects are important in achieving the same goal, but they just play, um, I almost think of like, if you look at like a cheering move, the, the, um, the cheerleader that's going up in the air, you have, you always have three people that are holding that person up, right? Everybody in that sequence is important. Of course, the emphasis gets played to the cheerleader that's up in the air, right? But you have to look at the, what's causing that person to be up in the air, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you have the, um, are you talking right now about we're what talking about causes, epiglottic inversion? What causes okay. the epiglottis? Can convert? I just say one thing, which I obviously this is the case. The primary movers of epiglottic inversion are the structures you're going to talk about in terms of passive structures that are forces on it. Mm -hmm. And so I just want to make sure people understand what we're talking about. Okay. There are things that can move something that are a muscle that is influenced by a nerve. You can close your eyelids and squeeze them tight through muscle, through uh, muscles, right? Mm -hmm. That got a command from a nerve. Or somebody can put their fingers over your eyelids and push them yeah. shut, that whether you want it or not, right? Yep. And it can close your eyelids. We're talking about the latter. That is a structure that's moving another flexible structure. Now, that is, it doesn't mean that there isn't one paired muscle that does play a role in this, and that is the epiglottic muscle. Mm -hmm. The epiglottic muscle goes as it's named, between the epiglottis and the retinoids. And when it contracts, it helps play a role in inverting the epiglottis in and of itself. And what we know about those muscle fibers, it is not sufficient to cause complete epiglottic inversion, but it does play a role, which is why we're gonna focus primarily on the other major structures that aren't connected to the epiglottis, but push on it passively. Sure. Does that make sense? Yep. Okay. Yep. So you have the elevation of the larynx. So. Um, that combined with the posterior movement of the tongue is going to be two of the main components that help um, elevate the larynx so that the as the larynx is moving um, superiorly and the tongue is moving posteriorly, those two actions combined are going to help place the epiglottis in that horizontal position in order to be ready to um, invert and close over the laryngeal um, inlet. The other component that's important is the contraction of the pharynx. So um, as you know, the pharynx contracts um, in a superior to inferior um, motion as you have the superior in the middle and the inferior constrictors. And those are aiding to really constrict the pharynx in order to help tilt the free end of the epiglottis in that final inverted position to really have that nice closure over the laryngeal vestibule that helps to protect because it, it's literally you know covering the arytenoids but it also serves a role in in aiding and diverting the bolus around the um, laryngeal vestibule so you have your 
um, piriform sinuses, that these channels are just designated to just keep the bolus as far away from the vestibule as possible. And so the epiglottis serves as those two functions. Um, so I just also want, I'm glad you put it in that sequence. So what you've said is that one major component is the tongue to get it in horizontal. And the other point, uh, important component is the pharynx to get it so that it's completely inverted. I just wanted to add that if you think of the epiglottis as a typically shaped leaf where you have a rounded part and the end goes to the tip, which would go to the stem. It's the tip of the epiglottis that comes to the point, also known as the petiole, that is attached to the thyroid cartilage. This leaf needs to fold in half so that the rounded part is touching the, air, the retinoids and the tip is obviously still attached to the thyroid cartilage, right? Mm -hmm. So in order for it to, to fold in half the way you would bring the tip of your fingers down to close to your wrist, if you think of making that folding action, um, it, needs, it needs to first get to horizontal because on your way down to get your fingertips to, the, to close to your wrist, you're horizontal. And that's, according to data from Bill Pearson, primarily the role of the tongue. But this is where I want to insert the hyoid bone. Sure. You would have to think of the hyoid bone if you have your hands so that your fingertips or your fingers are sort of horizontal with the ground and you're, you're getting closer to your, your wrist, your knuckles is sort of where the um, hyoid bone is attached to. So there is a hyoepiglottic ligament. Now keep in mind, the hyoid is going in the upward forward direction and the epiglottis, the part of the epiglottis that's folding down is going opposite. It's going back and down toward the retinoids. So how is the hyoid, how is hyoid attached to this thing and not making it difficult? Well, some argue theoretically that the hyoid bones attachment to the epiglottis at this midpoint is what serves as a folding point. Mm -hmm. So it needs a folding point. So the freer end, that's the rounded end of the leaf, if you will, is being pushed to horizontal first by the tongue. And it can be pushed to horizontal by the tongue because the larynx is elevated, getting it closer to the base of the tongue, which is also coming down. So that means laryngeal elevation plays a role in two things. One is getting the epiglottis closer to the base of the tongue, which is gonna come and push part of it down, but also pulling on the UES. So when we think about laryngeal elevation, we wanna put a pin in this for what we think we're actually looking at it for at the bedside when you feel it. Do you really think that it's two main functions, getting the tip of the epiglottis close to the tongue and opening the UES is anything that you can measure at the bedside, sure. right? Yeah, okay. Right, exactly, and I think that you know, this was, um, I really enjoyed, um, the, if you're interested in the movement of the epiglottis, the, the, some of the, one of the papers that we're referencing is Bill Pearson's work. Um, it was a paper he published in the Rangoscope in 2016, where they did um, computational modeling to look at the function of these structures and, and their, basically their role in being able to um, execute the movement of the epiglottis and what, what he showed and the thing that was really striking and I was just glad to finally see it like really printed in paper is that we're not disputing that the hyoid doesn't play a role in epiglottic conversion, of course, as, um, as Ianessa had just said, but movement of the hyoid alone cannot invert the epiglottis. It's really a player that, um, will, will, Give it a supporting role, I guess. It's the say? kicker in football. And I know nothing about sports. <laughs> but I understand that when that kick matters, it really matters. 
But does it mean that if you don't have that, if all the other functions work, sure. that you can't have a swallow without it? Not necessarily. I mean, it's the hyoid is an attachment point for many muscles, and mm -hmm. that's why it doesn't articulate with any other bone because right. it can move in multiple trajectories it, for that reason. And it's a fulcrum. It's a fulcrum. That's exactly how it's described in Peter Carillis's paper from 1992 to talk about its role in the UAS. Of course, um, what happened, people forgot about the next paragraph where he talks about the role of the larynx in the UES that just got completely skipped. But anyway, I'm not going to nerd out too hard because that's two podcasts away. But um, ultimately, it's a fulcrum. It's got a lot of attachment. And fortunately for it, it is the most sparkly of all the events because it's radio opaque beyond the larynx because it's bone. Yep. The larynx is cartilage. So we can see it better, so we tend to pay more attention to it and spend a lot of time surmising what it might do in the absence of considering, it can't do much considering what we know about sure. what it's connected to. So would it be fair to say, mm -hmm. would you say that it's helpful, but yeah. not necessary? Yeah, it's helpful, but not necessary. Unless, now look, and we know someone's this. gonna say, if you go chopping out a hyoid bone, are they gonna have a swallow? Well, I've seen swallows from folks who've had head and neck cancer where they've had a clean resection of the highway bone. And in fact, Heather Starmer sent me, she works at, at um, Stanford and she sent me a beautiful video of somebody who had a clean resection of the highway bone and their swallow, when I show this to people, people are like, well, something's missing, but the swallow looks amazing. I'm like, yeah, they don't have a highway bone and sure. everything's beautiful. Yeah, and I think it's this is a great, um, a great point to really emphasize the fact that there's a reason that we have this event, laryngeal vestibule closure, it's so important. We swallow so many times. It's so important to keep things out of our lungs. Obviously, this is a critical event. I don't think we need to argue that, that you may wonder, well, why are there so many components that are um, present to help achieve this? And you could say that it's complicated in and that you, you you may argue that that's a bad thing oh well so many things have to happen in order for every so many things have to go right for this to make it happen but i would argue that it's there's a lot of ways that the system can compensate for itself so there's a lot of fail safe so if you have your hyoid bone compromised you can still swallow and close your airway if you have partial resection of your base of tongue, you can still get laryngeal vestibule closure. The system is set up to be able to compensate for itself in the presence of any sort of perturbation or error or mm -hmm. um, resection, any surgery, anything mm -hmm. that could cause harm, even in, in the case of a stroke, certain parts. I mean, a car can go without a muffler. It's clunky and loud, but it can go, Sure. right? I mean, I feel like there are parts of the swallow where it's mm -hmm. the engine guys, like it's wheels we got to have this thing, mm -hmm. but it's possible that there are some components of laryngeal vestibule closure that make it more optimal, but don't make it possible. Yes, exactly. So... And it's possible that the hyoid bone is one of those. And I, I don't, I hate to be anti-hyoid. It's just that I feel like I have to be the other end of the pendulum because I see so many reports and so many research studies where all they do is detail hyoid movement and say, and say, and there was less aspiration, therefore, and make this connection. You're like, right. wait, no, but, but was the airway wide open the whole time? Like the epigotic exactly. invert, what were the retinoids doing? Those are the things that ultimately block the bullets. Right. So if you're targeting hy hyoid movement and therapy, it better be not just related to penetration aspiration. It should be connected to the ultimate goal of closing the airway. Yeah. How is a impaired 
movement of the hyoid bone affecting the closure of the laryngeal vestibule. I need to see that connection there. And if not, then what are we talking about? Yeah. Yeah. And okay. So you said some really important key things about if you had to segregate, we're we're still on epiglottic inversion. And so we have getting it to horizontal by the tongue. I just, before we move on to continuing with the complete fold um, with the pharynx, before we get to the pharynx, I just want to make sure people understand what we're talking about in terms of what are the muscles that play a role in getting the larynx up? This is a big issue as well. Again, people keep obsessing over the hyoid when it's not. Mm-hmm. What elevates the larynx? It's not the submental muscles. The submental muscles are not attached to the larynx. They're attached to the hyoid bone. And this say, is it, a, say it again. For say the it again. on the back. <laughs> <laughs> hold my beer because I'm about yeah. to go hard or hold my wine on, on this laryngeal elevation issue. Again, the muscles that are attached to the hyoid bone are the submental muscles and some others, obviously. These muscles are not attached to the larynx. Again, in this paper and many others that Bill Pearson um, have published and referred to clearly show not just the anatomical but physiologic connections between the longitudinal pharyngeal muscles that are, and if you don't know what they are, I mean, I strongly suggest you can even type in Google. You don't have to pay money for this. Longitudinal pharyngeal muscles. We have a whole section on it in the Swallowing Training Education Portal, which you can look up. And those three muscles are longitudinal muscles that go either from the palate or the skull and connect to the uh, hyolarynx, primarily the thyroid cartilage is the most important thing here. Yeah. Um, and so the- they shorten, and not only do they shorten the pharynx, they also shorten the larynx. Mm-hmm. In terms of, well, they shorten causing the larynx to elevate. Now, there is the thyrohyoid muscle. And Bill even sent us some emails saying it only contributes to maybe like less than 20% of laryngeal elevation. Yeah. As you can tell by the name, it goes between the hyoid bone and larynx. But in our studies at the NIH, led by Christy Ludlow, she, we have put an electrode into that muscle to stimulate it in isolation. What it does is it pulls the hyoid down and the larynx up. It approximates the two structures. So without hyoid elevation, the thyrohyoid alone cannot be enough to elevate the larynx. So when you're talking about laryngeal elevation, guys, you're actually, to some degree, looking at an assessment of pharyngeal muscles yeah. because those are the primary elevators I wouldn't even say to some degree. I would say primarily. Well, because of thyrohyoid. In, oh, in, yeah, in, sure. in the case of a adequately functioning hyoid and the thyroid is allowing the larynx to move with the hyoid, it does play a role in it. It's not it a completely. Role, but I would call the longitudinal pharyngeal muscles, they're like the Leonardo DiCaprio's of the swallowing system. And hear me out on this. It's because it's they're the ones doing beautiful work and doing all of the work not all of the work, but a lot of the work. They're, they're getting A-list. no recognition. So you're saying they're A-list and they're not getting the Oscars. Leonardo DiCaprio has <laughs> been in so many movies and has never won an Oscar until just recently for The Revenant. And it's Where he aspirated, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> and they but fixed it like, by burning like his Mer- neck. Meryl Streep is in the same category. Like, yeah. always doing this amazing work and just never getting the recognition. And if you're sitting there wondering, like, God, I never even, like, really thought about longitudinal pharyngeal muscles then this is exactly why yeah. they just are not getting so the are recognition. you saying then that like brad pitt is a submental muscle yes like, yeah oh, i mean they're brad both pitt's a pretty good actor i need I'm brad gonna... pitt is pretty on top of that he really let's is. just start with well that. and that's the that's the thing about the hyoid bone like yeah. what's the reason that that the hyoid bone well, is getting think, all the attention okay let me just let me just say it. you right know there. what if leo had married some high list like high girl like why is he he needs to marry someone who people are controversial about i'm just saying like he's doing his own damage you cannot live only on your art you have to live in the inquirer and he's not doing it brad has married jen 
and and Angela. With Angelina. Julie. Yeah. yeah. So mm-hmm. I clearly don't know their names. Anyway, back. I appreciate the analogy. Sure. But I I mean, it's important to give a little bit of historical background here in that yeah. why is it that the highway gets all the attention yeah. and that that's where most treatment targets are? It's because it's the easiest thing to see in fluoro. Mm-hmm. I mean, historically, that was the structure that was easy to measure. You can always visualize it in the swallow. Mm-hmm. It gets so much attention. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's not surprising that you know so many research studies so many clinicians focus on that movement mm-hmm. um you can't see the longitudinal pharyngeal muscles you yep. can only see the action of these muscles as the larynx is elevating mm-hmm. so it's just something to keep in mind um when really thinking about who's doing the dirty work in swallowing yeah, yeah. the know. important but dirty work and, yeah. uh, and hidden stuff so okay, so we've we've talked about that. Obviously, extrinsic laryngeal lingual extrinsic lingual muscles pull the tongue back and down. So primarily, styloglosses are and hyoglosses are going to play a role in that. Doesn't mean the others don't do anything, but for the back and down movement, those are the lingual muscles we're mm-hmm. thinking about to help push the epiglottis down. And this is what we talked about before in the propulsion talk or squeeze back or whatever you want to call it, that the tongue doesn't just play a role in in bolus efficiency, it's forgotten about its role in airway protection in the same way laryngeal elevation gets forgotten in terms of its role in bolus efficiency. Sure. So now, why don't you start detailing the pharynx's role on um, moving the epiglottis to a completely folded position so the rounded part that we can see behind the tongue is now at the level of the arytenoids. Sure. Yeah, so this one's a little more difficult to measure, right? Because um, we're talking about, in fluoro, we see the posterior pharyngeal wall, but keeping in, in mind that these pharyngeal muscles are U-shaped, and we just can't r- really appreciate that in the lateral view of video fluoroscopy. And what we do appreciate about the movement of these muscles is that um, contraction that you see I won't say that it's, um, you know, it's controversial to say that it is a um, peristaltic movement, but it is, it is referred to peristaltic because it's not. Yeah, yeah. It's a, yeah. people will say that, but that's not the real appropriate term, term to use. It is referred wave. to as a stripping wave, mm-hmm. um, where the superior pharyngeal muscles, the contraction is followed by the middle superior or the middle pharyngeal constrictors, and then the inferior pharyngeal constrictors, and really the um you know the as the important the port the important um function of these muscles is to squeeze the pharynx in order to um squeeze the tail of the bolus to help it in terms of efficiency to propel the bolus towards the esophagus but as an added function is that with the epiglottis already in that horizontal position as these muscles are being contracted, it's also timely in that those middle um, pharyngeal constrictors are able to compress on the epiglottis to add that extra downward um, movement downward movement of the epiglottis and maintain that really tight seal around the laryngeal vestibule. And keep in mind, at this point, the bolus is below this wave. Yes. So the pharyngeal squeeze is pushing down the tail of the bolus and the epiglottis. Mm-hmm. It's not ahead of the, uh, the bolus, because that doesn't make sense. Right. So, and we'll talk more about the pharynx later, but just to give you perspective of how complicated this is, that pushing the bolus 
down adjacent to the epiglottis that it's also closing. And that's why when you talk about the intricacy of swallowing and things happening at the same time, remember that if the bolus is going around the airway, it's not able to push the bolus into the larynx at the same time that it's also closing larynx because the bolus is lateral to the larynx, Yeah. right? So that's one thing that I wanted to emphasize. The other thing is let's also talk about the attachments of the muscles. I just wanna say, I feel like a separate course alone on just the anatomy would just what insertion and attachment point would help explain so much about how this works. Because if you know that two of the three pharyngeal constrictors are attached to the highway or the larynx, then you would understand what that function means when the pharynx closes. So let's start with the superior pharyngeal constrictor that goes from, you know, what you can see at the back of the throat when you're looking in somebody's Mm-hmm. Um, oral cavity with a pen light, it courses anteriorly to a raphe, which is a seam, if you will, that it, that is then connected to the buccinator. So it goes forward to your cheeks, if you will. It's at the level of the cheeks. So that's the first level. The second level, when that middle pharyngeal constrictor courses forward, what it attaches to is the highway bone. And then the inferior pharyngeal constrictor, which is larger, has two parts, the thyropharyngeus and the cricofringes, which we're more familiar with. So it attaches to the larynx. So the pharyngeal muscles are so intimately related to the larynx, both for elevation, those are the longitudinal pharyngeal muscles that pull the larynx up, but also in terms of using the larynx as a way to to close the lumen of the pharynx, it -hmm. makes perfect sense that the epiglottis, if partially inverted, gets caught in that pressure between the pharynx and the larynx and being flexible cartilage, which is different from the other cartilages, right. gets pulled down to the level of the retinoids. Yeah, exactly. So all of these muscles are really working together to achieve the same goals, right? Um, they all have a different role um, in achieving that. And based on what you see in a disordered swallow, by understanding where these muscles are attached and the timing of when they're supposed to con contract can really help you to decipher um, what, which component is going wrong beyond just what you can visually see in fluoro, right. if that makes sense. If, you're, um, if you can understand, oh, well, the bolus is being, um, you know, as we said, these structures are meant to provide compression on the tail of the bolus. So if part of the bolus is being cut off, and left in the vollecula and left more in the, um, you know, at the base of the tongue or more in the upper part of the pharynx, then it gives you some insight into, all right, well, maybe, maybe the timing is off. Mm-hmm. Maybe um, the contraction isn't happening as, as strongly as it should. So mm-hmm. understanding where these muscles are attached and the timing of when they're supposed to be um, happening is, is, does help with differentially diagnosing what aspect of the swallowing is impaired. Right. So I like to think of the epiglottis as a weather vane. That's that thing that sits on the top of your house that maybe has a rooster on it and it has these four prongs coming out of it. It says north, south, east, west. And depending on when it, where it's spinning can tell you something about where the wind direction. So the epiglottis, for instance, if it can go horizontal but go, can't go beyond, beyond that because it sort of gets trapped in the pharyngeal wall, suggests that 
in the absence of a stripping wave that maybe there's not enough stripping wave because there just isn't any or maybe the timing between its position at horizontal and mm -hmm. when the stripping wave happens is a problem sure. you might expect that there's going to be residue because it never completely inverted right. you might expect that some of the bolus is going to enter the larynx at the level of the retinoids because it never made it all the way down and some of you taking clues from the position of the epiglottis plus bolus flow to make a reasonable logical explanation for what happened in the absence of 3D visualization of all structures and the bolus. It's like, um, I don't, it doesn't matter if you like Ben Carson or not, but when I was at Hopkins and he was also there, I went to some talk where he was talking about what surgeons have to do. And he said, maybe your job is to go in there and do something with the heart. And you actually really need information about the lungs to make this decision about the heart. You can't go ripping through things and say, well, let's just whip out the lungs too while we're in here. You have to leave that intact and make extrapolations to what you think the lungs are doing without actually getting access to it, using mm -hmm. all the clinical information, using yeah. all the um, electrophysiologic, whatever information you're getting to make an assessment about what you think the lungs are doing, even though you only have access to the heart. Sure. And I think the same thing happens with swallowing. There's this assumption that imaging will show you everything, but actually imaging shows you more than no imaging, but you still have to extrapolate and recognize the limitations of whatever imaging you're dealing with. But if you understand the system, you can make reasonable, logical, physiological rationales for why you think, what you think is happening. Sure. So I think one of our main points here is that um, we have emphasized the different components that aid in epiglottic inversion. So I want you to think twice about if you're writing a report or, re or reading a report from somebody else that says, that um, patient had uh, poor, epiglottic inversion. poor epiglottic inversion, therefore residue in the vollecula. Does that really make sense? Like, are we? Can we really blame the epiglottis? Because the real question is, why didn't the epiglottis invert? So let me just say the analogy I have for that is when people say, "Oh, you know, Grandma Edna died." You're like, "Oh, why? Well, she was old." Um, <laughs> people don't die of old age. Old age is puts you in a place where you're likely to die of certain things sure. but you died of a thing not old age old age in and of itself doesn't come whip you off over your head right. say well you were 88 therefore and it's like the epiglottic in didn't invert why why it doesn't right. invert on its own right exactly now the interesting thing to know is that um sometimes there's an overemphasis on the bolus that is responsible for um inverting the epiglottis and i just want to say that the epiglottis inverts during a saliva swallow. It doesn't need the bolus to aid in its compression and inverting. These structures are set up in a way that it will um, invert the epiglottis perfectly fine without a bolus at all. Um, of course, you need some sort of saliva to have that sensory component to just initiate the swallow in the first place, but that's a different conversation. But that being said is the bolus can add weight in order to assist in epiglottic inversion. And that can be a strategy uh, sometimes where um, in, you know, if the epiglottis, if the tongue or the larynx or the pharynx are unable to invert the epiglottis, sometimes extra weight from the bolus can assist in that. Um, but it also makes you really think about when we're implementing strategies to invert the epiglottis, are, are the strategies actually, they're not directly influencing the epiglottis, they're influencing the structure 
that helps to invert the epiglottis. Mm -hmm. So for example, with a effortful swallow, if you tell me, well, the effortful swallow made the epiglottis invert, I would say you're missing a piece in there, right? Maybe the epigl maybe the effortful swallow made lingual propulsion more um, effective, which in turn helped to invert the epiglottis. So I think that you have to think of these structures in that way when you're writing your notes and when you're creating treatment plans of what are you really trying to target? You're not yeah. targeting the epiglottis per se. You're targeting the structure that aids the epiglottis to be able to invert in the passive way that it does. Yeah, and again, that's the missing piece with the old people is like, yes, she was 102, and yes, she died. But there's a missing piece there. Sure. Both are true, but the, the picture is missing, which means we don't actually know the why, yeah. right? Both are true. Yes, epiglottic inversion. But you know the other thing I would add? It's we, like saying, I'm, we're giving grandma antibiotics for old age. Exactly. It's like, what's, what's the missing piece? Yeah. Not insulin? Not she, insulin? <laughs> she's old, so maybe she's more susceptible to infection, and yeah. the antibiotics are helping the infection, but you're, the you antibiotics aren't helping old age. Yeah. And we don't know if the, she even has an infection because you never said it, right? <laughs> so with, the, with, with reports that just list a bunch of problems like epiglottic inversion, it could be that you have poor epiglottic inversion. It has no role in aspiration too. Yeah. So you have to tie two things. Yes, what was the reason for epiglottic inversion and did that have anything to do with why they aspirate? Because sure. if you aspirate after the swallow because the UAS didn't open, listing epiglottic inversion could be a red herring right yeah. you could i'm not saying don't list it i'm saying list it list why and indicate that it wasn't a primary factor or any factor in aspiration in that particular swallow exactly and you and can't even list epiglottic inversion as a thing someone has like diabetes yeah. it's not a thing you're stuck with forever it can happen in one swallow and not the other sure it, it's you know if you get a report that says like well patient had impaired epiglottic inversion i still have no idea what to treat yeah I have no idea if, if I'm treating the tongue or the pharynx or the larynx or if I'm treating timing or yeah. if I'm treating who or, knows. Or they have a fibrotic one and you're not treating it anyway because it's, it's short and stubby and stiff. Right. Like what's going on, sure. right? Anyways. All right. So move now to a retinoid. Right. So movements. let me backtrack and just... And while um, you do that, I'm going to pour some more wine. Okay. So let me just backtrack and say that um, when I started this conversation, I mentioned that the two most the the two primary components of laryngeal vestibule closure were the epiglottic inversion which i think we just um beat to death at nauseum and also the approximation of the arytenoids to the base of the epiglottis so um the epiglottis the epiglottic inversion alone is not going to create that um, obliteration of the airspace within the laryngeal vestibule. It helps, but the other key component is movement of the arytenoids towards the base of the epiglottis to approximate and um, create that obliteration. But also, we have two arytenoids, and medialization of these arytenoids also is important in preventing any bolus from entering in through the posterior commissure much more difficult to see in fluoro because we are only able to really appreciate that lateral view of the arytenoids, but um, making sure that the interarytenoids and the oblique muscles are contracting in order to bring those arytenoids tight together will help prevent any 
um, bolus from like the piriform sinuses from maybe creeping up and sneaking in between the arytenoids and into the laryngeal vestibule. And you can appreciate a little bit of that, again, doing your detective work by using the bolus to give you clues about what's going on with physiology. Mm -hmm. So when I see a bolus sneak in through the posterior commissure and go right down the posterior aspect of the trachea, I can surmise, especially if there's epiglottic inversion in the midst of that and it mm -hmm. sneaks in, I can surmise that perhaps they weren't completely, they weren't medial, medialized enough and perhaps the bolus snuck in. Now, one thing to remember is that there's mucosa and muscle that pretty much cover the retinoids from a posterior view. So it's not like there's these retinoids and there's giant space between them. There are interretinoid muscles, but not everybody's epiglottis completely goes down below the level of the retinoids. There's anatomical variation. Mm -hmm. So remember this, for some people, a retinoid function might be more of a factor than epiglottis and in other people the epiglottis is more a factor mm -hmm. we're saying these are two primary things and generally in the absence of both of these you're going to see maybe some penetration especially with a larger thin liquid bolus but it doesn't mean everyone relies equally on both components for a normal swallow mm -hmm. exactly so um these components these components combined are going to create a um is going to create closure of the laryngeal vestibule that ultimately is going to prevent material from being penetrated into that airspace um, initially. Now, the cool thing about the laryngeal vestibule, it's so dynamic and complex, is that um, say material does get penetrated into the laryngeal vestibule, it doesn't stop there. Its function and its ability to prevent aspiration does not end there. There are multiple lines of defense. So I would say that the arytenoid approximation to the base of epiglottis, the epiglottis inverting, that's the first line of defense. That's the gates saying, don't come in here. This is, uh, we don't want any material into the laryngeal vestibule. But as is the case, sometimes that happens even in healthy individuals that material penetrates into the laryngeal vestibule. It's normal, it happens. And because of this, there are other lines of defense that are ready to ensure that that material does not enter below the vocal folds. Mm -hmm. um, one of those lines of defense is the laryngeal vestibule's ability to squeeze out a bolus that has entered um, from a bottom to top or a rostral to caudal. Or an inferior to superior direction. Sure. All of those apply. Yep. And I think that this aspect of the orange vestibule closure is so cool and interesting because I just love that our bodies are designed in a way to always um, protect ourselves. So for example, People always um, say that, oh, when material is penetrated into the laryngeal vestibule, the patient didn't cough, they should have coughed. Actually, they should not have coughed. That's not the response that those sensory nerves are designed to do. So the, um, the superior laryngeal nerve that innervates the laryngeal vestibule, um, there have been studies that show that when you actually um, stimulate that nerve, the reaction that you get is a swallow. You mm -hmm. don't get a cough, you get a swallow. So what often happens And Alicia, is that, tell them why they get a swallow. Um, what do you mean? Tell, tell them why they get a swallow. The swallow is protective, right? Yeah, the swallow is protective in that what's going to happen is during that swallow, that bolus is going to be squeezed out of the laryngeal vestibule in that inferior to... Superior. Bottom to top. Bottom to top. Bottom to top, we'll say, um, to prevent that material from 
you know, moving further down below the vocal. And so what that means is generally you, when people look at the sequence, it's not, it's not one of those things where every single study that's ever tested has always found it. But you may have seen this also clinically where the bolus has deep penetrated. And that's why in the PAS we have those, uh, we have those um, options for the bolus went to the level of vocables but was squeezed out in the absence of a cough sometimes. And that's because you might see more of a true vocables, false vocables um, action that happens from bottom to top true than false, leading to this removal of the bolus in the, in the double swallow when it was felt there. Why is that the case? Well, there are some studies, it's by Mazzoni, and um, Dr. Karen Wheeler is one who showed this to me, and it, this paper is excellent. And it shows that our, body, our bodies are smart enough, one, to not further damage ourselves, but also to use as little effort as possible. Mm -hmm. A cough requires us to inhale something deeper. Deeper. Why would we inhale when we're when we penetrated a bolus to the level of vocal folds and now drink, drag it into our trachea and do this eff effortful cough? If we could just double swallow, and squeeze it out. There's something else called an expiration reflex, which is just pure expiration and no inspiration that sometimes people do. But we shouldn't penalize our patients for quote silent penetration because we have uh, because they've actually cleared it in the most efficient way by double swallowing. It's not like a cough is the only response. Now, obviously, the amount of stimulus in that error in that area and the amount of error that you might get because it feels really dangerous like let's say you have a giant bolus maybe a cough is the best thing but in general when you have a small amount in the larynx sometimes a double swallow is best the other thing to remember we haven't talked about a sensation and the zones of sensation within the larynx vary so vocal folds and up are the internal branch of the superior laryngeal nerve part of the vagus below the vocal folds is the recurrent laryngeal nerve. So it could very well be that due to innervation, one response is necessary, meaning you're in the ISLN, internal superior laryngeal nerve area, and really what's appropriate for this area where the error signals perhaps are lower is a double swallow or a throat clear. Now, if the bolus has gone below the vocal folds, you're in the trachea, and the RLN is being signaled, maybe now it's like, okay, this requires a cough to get this out because we don't have any sphincteric sure. action now at this point. It's all a tube going down. We need you to inhale and then have a forceful exhale, which we call a cough. Sure, yeah. And I would say the cough is the third line of defense. Yeah. So if you are coughing, it means that it has gone through two levels of protection and now we're at the level that... The last line of defense. Yeah. We, gotta, we call the laryngeal vestibule closure the first, first line, line again of defense against aspiration. Sure. And a lot of people say, but what about the true vocal folds? Honestly, do you want to rely on your true vocal folds every time you swallow to be the, the level of defense? You don't want it in your airway in the first place. And by airway, in this case, I mean larynx, because really your nasal passages, everything is airway. Sure. But we're talking about the larynx. And LVC protects from things going in the larynx. It protects against penetration. Yep. True vocal folds can be a play a role in protecting against aspiration, but by the time you've gotten that low, you're already in deep penetration mode. Right, right. Um, and it's not, yeah, it's just different levels. And I think that, you know, m part of my love of studying the laryngeal vestibule and wanting to rehabilitate and to, you know, try to develop new strategies to improve laryngeal vestibule closure is that I don't want my body to have to cough. I want, I don't, improving cough and uh, cough effectiveness and all of that is hugely important 
But my passion is that I would rather set the mechanism in place so that we don't have to get to that point. Shall we talk about the title of my talk from years ago called Prevention is the Best Protection, which we thought yeah. was a sex education yeah. talk about condoms? Uh, yeah, we'll talk about that later. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, I had a whole com- a whole talk about coughing is great, but how about we live in a world where you didn't have to? I know it's impossible and healthy people cough. Right. And that was the title of my talk. And I was like, oh my God, like, is this like a sex education sure. talk? Sure. But anyway... Um, well, so, and I'll just say right now, I'll kind of get a little controversial and uh-oh. say, you know, I have been challenged in the past of not being supportive of fees, and that's, it's not true. My, um, my emphasis in really using video fluoroscopy is that I think that these mechanisms are extremely important in understanding the way that the laryngeal vestibule is able to prevent material from entering and this is something that you just can't see with fees yeah so i think that being able to visualize the structures themselves with fees is awesome and really important i think that it has validity in being able to see when material um if it's been aspirated or if it's been penetrated after the fact but my struggle is i really care about how these structures and how the mechanism is working together in order to understand why the aspiration or why the penetration got there in the first place. Right, and that's the other thing. Even if on fees, let's say there was no whiteout for some reason and you saw epiglottic closure, you saw you saw all these things, you still wouldn't really be able to still see the pharynx and the tongue relative to it because you're gonna get whiteout from that. Right. Um, and you can't, so again, we want to be able to talk about these things dispassionately without any sort of subjectivity. And we're simply saying the only way to see laryngeal vestibule closure or the swallow, in fact, with a routinely available clinical tool is with video fluoroscopy. Sure. And I understand the argument of that, you know, you can appreciate the length of the whiteout period and you can make some, some educated guesses about what may be happening with the swallow during the closure of the laryngeal vestibule but um you know for me the intricacies and being able to understand well was the bolus squeezed out in the in the middle of the swallow um were the arytenoids making contact with the base of the epiglottis was the epiglottis horizontal or was it fully inverted all of these things that are happening in, in you know, a half a second during that period. And where is the bolus really in this important. time? During the whiteout, where in the larynx is the bolus caught? Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, so so I, can I? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, well, I was going to kind of move on to something. Me too. Okay. Yeah. Maybe we're going to do something. So <laughs> you go. You, you go. go. You go. You go. Um, so there's one like huge thing that we haven't talked about is that we're talking about these structures. We're talking about the components. So what makes this... Um, what makes the laryngeal vestibule close and that's all fine and dandy that's great we know the components Mm -hmm. we know that it happens Mm -hmm. but there's this whole other layer Mm -hmm. in that it's not just does it happen does it not happen Mm -hmm. does it close is it not close is it impaired is it not impaired Mm -hmm. it's um, there's a really critical timing component to Mm -hmm. this structure where we have to ask ourselves how long did it stay closed and when did it start and when was when it did first it start? closed? Exactly. So from when the swallow was initiated, as um, seen by the bursting of the hyoid bone, mm-hmm. how long did it take those arytenoids to meet the base of the epiglottis? Did it take, um, you know, 
I'm trying to think of a good analogy. This is your job. But whether, <laughs> you know, to get from point A to point B, I want you to get there fast. The yeah. bolus Reaction is time, right? coming. Well, you know, the other thing is some people get swallow initiation, which is their our previous podcast, confused with for, with when the larynx first starts to close. Mm-hmm. We want to emphasize, in order for laryngovascular closure to happen, you have to have the swallow triggered. Sure. Doesn't mean it's going to happen all the way if you have dysphagia, and I get that. Yeah. But... In healthy people, in order for some all the events to be triggered, hopefully everybody understands that. I will also argue, there are maneuvers that you can have people do that are non-swallow maneuvers, which we have emphasized in the Normal Swallowing 101 course in a patient who had no laryngovascular closure, where the brainstem's job, in this case, this is a brainstem stroke, and it was not patterning laryngovascular closure. It, it just, there was none of it. Mm-hmm. However, when we have this person do what's called Valsalva, it's called bearing down, it's like, bearing down because you're pooping, you're pushing out a baby, whatever. The larynx closes off at multiple levels intrinsically. It does not lead to learned, to um, epiglottic inversion. Sure. Same thing with EMST. When you do EMST on floor, you can see intrinsically that the larynx closes off. When you do a breath hole, the larynx intrinsically closes. None of those things lead to epiglottic inversion. Why? Epiglottic inversion is not an intrinsic laryngeal function in and of itself. You have to have these other structures involved. Sure. This is why laryngeal vascular closure is still the most intricate and complicated function sure. because it takes the tongue, the larynx, and the pharynx. And in fact, some people have shown that a very tight UES can tether the larynx such that it can impact airway protection. Sure. And I would just add another note that um, I feel like it goes without saying, but you mentioned EMST and Valsalva, that um, a lot of times those... Um, modalities can help with vocal fold approximation, but they don't necessarily help with a retinoid approximation to the base of the epiglottis. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't be recommending that people use these modalities for laryngeal vestibule closure as a treatment mm-hmm. for that. Um, and, and with that, I, I feel like the need just to like say out loud that vocal fold closure mm-hmm. is not the same as laryngeal vestibule closure. Right. And I just felt like I had to say that no, out loud. No, you're right. Because you're so right because every time I would submit a paper or a grant, I would always get the response, but what about true vocal fold closure? And I'd be like, what about it? Sure. Also, you can have a completely paralyzed vocal cord yes. and have perfect laryngeal, laryngeal vestibule, vestibule closure. closure. Yes. They are... They are mutually exclusive of each other in certain circumstances sure you can have both vocal folds paralyzed and still have adequate laryngeal vestibule closure yeah. and it goes back to what i said True. about there's so many different components that can compensate the vocal folds are the inferior border of the laryngeal vestibule and i see way too many people um trying to combine oh well if a patient has a vocal fold paralysis it means that they're they don't have good airway closure that is not the yeah. same thing yeah and look how many people have great laryngeal have horrible laryngeal vocal closure and perfect yeah and and perfect uh phony uh voice voice and have no issues with anything in terms of phonation exactly and so. people it's just i i think this all comes down to why we're doing this series which is when we and we're only scratching the surface in terms of how complicated all this stuff is mm-hmm. verbally if you had to visualize very animations and a patient case sure. fees and floor you would realize there's so many ways to pull this together dynamically so i i guess you know obviously the next and last question we've we've touched on what is it um we can't really say who has it because a lot of people have it. and our argument is that it is so poorly studied we can't even say oh well this population 100 percent 
they're going to get LVC. Unless, of course, you're talking about people where the epiglottis is cut off or something like that. Like, mm -hmm. that's obviously a structural thing. We talked about how it works and the major components and the parts of swallow that it, it speaks to, like bolus efficiency or airway protection. And a lot of people are like, okay, how do I treat it? And I would argue the first and the most important thing that you need to be thinking about is which part of it is problematic. Right. Because if we're talking about the arytenoids, then maybe you're talking about a superglottic. Mm -hmm. If you're talking about the issue with the epiglottis not getting to horizontal, maybe you're talking about an effortful. Mm -hmm. So the first and most important thing is not tell me what to do to treat it is I can't tell you what to do unless you can reliably identify the problem yep. that is contributing to it. Yep. It's the same thing with physical therapists who are looking at somebody's walking function, right? If you say walking is impaired, it doesn't help you. Yeah. Well, what aspect of walking is impaired so I can focus on that component? There's a is lot of muscles involved. I mean, what? Yeah, I mean, like, is it, you know, does this person have, I don't know, I wish I knew more about PT so I could make better analogies. But um, <laughs> but you started it, so now you have to finish it. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. But it's, it's just not sufficient to say, like, um, patient will improve walking, by doing exercises three times a day. <laughs> well, I would I would take yeah. that analogy to something we understand, which is mastication is a problem. And you're like, they need to see an SLP. And we're like, uh, they don't have any teeth and they're trying to eat steak right now. They need a dentist. Yeah. You know, like which part are we talking about right, right. now? Right. Right. Are we talking about the tongue? Are we talking about the jaw? Are we talking? And about... let's say we analyze those and they're all fine, but you're like, they're edentulous. Yeah. Or is it <laughs> cognition? You know, there's a lot of different components. So I think that yeah, understanding the that's why we spend so much time in really mm -hmm. talking about the components is that you have to understand first of all what's how the, the components with? relate to exactly. the closure, how it contributes, what's its role, mm -hmm. and then you have to move backwards from there. Yeah. So, um, you know, it just goes back to the beginning of like at the end of the day, like don't we just care about like that they that it's closing and that it's keeping material from out of the laryngeal vestibule, and that's why I do think that um, imaging with video fluoroscopy is so important in being able to make that differential diagnosis. Um, so if I had to summarize, excuse me, if I had to summarize, I would say, one, we've already established how much we love this thing. Two, we think it's really important. Three, it's obviously very complicated, not because it has to be just to be like, I'm special, I'm complicated, I have issues and I need meds, but to say, hey guys, um, I have all these levels in place in case this goes wrong, I can start utilizing that other thing. So it's complicated because there's multiple fail safe. So mm -hmm. if 20% of the function goes away, 80% is still decent enough. Yep. So there's that. There's the also the issue where it plays a role in both bolus deficiency and airway protection. Yep. And lastly, in order for you to know which part of the problem is the case, you can't just say epiglottic inversion or, or a retinoid function you have to say yeah. well did the retinoids get to the base of the glottis did they not adduct yeah when tell me when the story tell, tell me, me the story. story tell me when i need to read between the lines because we can't see adduction in a lateral view therefore you use the bolus as a proxy to get at that physiology versus no literally yep. that retinoids didn't actually go to the base of the epiglottis and this is where things like mbsimp breaks those up for people to look at epiglottis separately sure. from a retinoids the base yep. of base of epiglottis if you've done that course you probably understand it's not just a uh did it close yes or no? It's not a one or zero. Right. 
Exactly. And, you know, I would say the MVS IMV is really helpful because it does make you look at each component separately. But I would say you can't stop with the MBS IMP. You have to take it to the next level where you say, okay, now I've identified what's impaired and what's normal. Now I need to tell the story. And I would argue that, so here's, it's not even an argument because we agree. I don't know why I have to start with that because we usually agree on this. But I, every time I do these courses, I get a question. The question is just, so what do you think of the MBS IMP? And I'm like, why is that? Why is that a question? It's not even an issue. The issue is, it's your job as a speech pathologist to understand the physiology to explain your rating. Yeah. The rating is great for us to be able to speak a, one a common language. language and to be talking about more than just aspiration yes or no. Yeah. But you still need to be able to say, when you say that it's a one on LVC, because it's not a zero or a two, so it's not perfect, but it's not horrible. Right. Which part was it? Was it the tongue? Was it the pharynx? Yeah. Was it the larynx? Like, which part? Sure. It's your job to say, in, say say more than just one, in a zero, note, one, or two. The MBSIMP is the O. It's just objective information. Yeah. You still have to write the A. Yeah. You still have to write the assessment and say, okay, here's what's going on. The tongue base is not, you know, moving posteriorly well enough. It's contributing to incomplete inversion of the epiglottis because, you know, like you have to tell that story and go on and say, at the end of the day, why is this person aspirating? Why is this person penetrating? And you're using that objective information above from the MBS IMP or from what, you know, however you describe your physiology to be able to connect those dots yeah. so that the person that's reading this report knows exactly what to treat when mm -hmm. they get this patient. Mm -hmm. They're not looking at, well, patient had impaired epiglottic conversion. They're like, I don't know what. And you know what? Here's the thing. Most people wouldn't even know that there's more to the story. So you, by listening to the podcast and hopefully pushing it into your practice means you're going to end up informing people and training other people on how this thing works because you say, Given the role of posterior lingual propulsion on moving the epiglottis to to, to horizontal, yep. we and which we did not see, we tested we tested effortful swallow to understand the role of the tongue on blah 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 blah. So you're one saying I I'm not just going to drop epiglottic inversion in this report. I'm going to tell you which part of it was a problem that we thought it was the tongue, and the next swallow trial we did was effortful, yep. focused on the tongue to see if it helped the epiglottis get to horizontal sure. position. Yeah. It's a story that you're telling in the report sure. and ultimately in all, all of these components may be absolutely perfect i think this is really important to state is that you may have zeros on every single component of the mbs imp and everything may be working perfectly but the timing of laryngeal vestibule closure is still so important it's it's something that's not factored into the mbs imp it's something separate mm -hmm. where you um need to be able to understand and appreciate that how long I know I've said this before, but the timing of these components mm -hmm. is its own aspect of the component. It's it's basically showing up to the airport, clearing security perfectly, and being at the gate an hour after your flight left. You did everything right to get there, yeah. but it already left an hour ago. Yeah. So what are we it, talking about? Exactly, exactly. And there are there are reference values for what is considered in the normal range for these things, and I I would you know, have listeners direct themselves to Katrina Steele just published a new paper where she segmented um, normative ranges based on the different ITSI levels. So for thin liquids and for, um, you know, thicker liquids based on the ITSI level, what that normal range should look like. And I think that that's really helpful for clinicians mm -hmm. to get a sense of, you know, well, how long should the laryngeal vestibule stay closed? And of and course how it long, depends and, on the bolus. And how long before it closes, which is even shorter. It's between like 100 exactly. and 300 milliseconds before it should start to close. Mm -hmm. And so, and we know it closes generally, not all the time in every study, longer with big, with more volume. 
So if you yeah. have a one ml versus the 30 ml, you can imagine the laryngeal vesicle closures can be open longer for the 30 ml than the one ml because it just needs it. Yeah. Exactly. So have we have we sufficiently bludgeoned this topic? I think so. I think um I think it'd be interesting if listeners were interested to get more into the sensory aspects of sensory aspects of how all these um how all these structure how the sensation matters and how that influences the function of these um events and how the brainstem and how the cortex can modulate these behaviors mm-hmm. i think that helps gives a lot of insight into how to develop treatment plans and we but know that and we know that the cortex can modulate it because sure. when you do a mendelssohn if you do it with laryngovascular closure you prolong the laryngovascular closure and by so, mendelssohn you mean the vlvc well no a mendelssohn some people say it needs to happen their previous papers say mendelssohn plus laryngovascular closure some say it doesn't we just care about yeah. elevation even if the larynx is right. open but if you focus on a patient saying we want you to do a Mendelssohn with the LVC or you with LVC prolonged right. or you do the volitional laryngovascular closure maneuver which we publish on yep. we know you can cortically extend that for sure. up to two up to six seconds yep. um, because your the cortex is modulating the brainstem so we know that it's behaviorally modified yep. by speech pathologists who understand physiology so it's possible sure. to modify LVC while a swallow is a reflex and does fulfill all the criteria for reflex it's a complicated one that's sure. modulated by the cortex yeah <sighs> okay I think I'm done yeah okay bye guys <laughs> <laughs>